0: Morning. Good morning. Good morning. Can we get that feedback? There's a lot of feedback going on. I got that? Okay. Those of you who don't know, I am Pastor Brian. I'm the absentee pastor that hasn't been here since uh, May. Now, but uh, yeah, I'm, I'm so delighted to be up here this morning. Like I said, it's been a long time. Uh, I had a work schedule change, but now I'm back to where I can be here Sunday mornings and being part of our rotation. I Normally, mean, I do preach. I preach on a fifth Sunday of the month. It's so not a whole lot. And when I do preach, I've been preaching through the various attributes of God. So this morning, I thought I would take you guys through the doct- doctrine of predestination. So before we get into it, uh, my text this morning is Ephesians 1, 4 through 6. So if you could turn there, and if you're able to stand, we will read God's holy word together. That's Ephesians 1, verses 4 through 6. The Apostle Paul writes, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. He predestined us to be adopted as sons through Jesus Christ for himself, according to the pleasure of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. Let us pray again. Heavenly Father, help me this morning. Help me, Lord, as we will be going to the very rim of the mystery of who you are, of what you've revealed, of your purposes that are too profound for us to grasp. Help us, Lord, this morning to be humbled. Help us to praise you in our hearts to see that we've been predestined by your grace. And the reason we've been predestined It was the pleasure of your will, but help us to see, Lord, this morning that it's only through predestination that we can be saved, because our sin is so bad, and our hearts are so obstinate. This is the only way your redemption could be secured. We thank you, Lord. We thank you for our time this morning. Help us to be humble. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So for the last three months, I've devoted a lot of time to studying the subject of predestination. I've read about 3,000 pages worth, about 11 books. It is definitely a controversial subject, to say the least. Now, I'm confident in the Word of God. I'm confident about what it says, but I was curious to see how others have expounded this topic, have gone through the pages of Scripture and taught this to their people. I wanted to see how they grappled with key passages in the implications of those passages. I wanted to see how they spoke of this doctrine with a glorifying conviction of the majesty and goodness of God. So I looked to key figures throughout church history, such as Augustine, the leading reformers John Calvin and Peter Vermigli, and the great Puritan Samuel Perkins, who wrote a 500-page volume on the subject, even coining the phrase, the golden chain of salvation. In fact, he drew a chart surveying the order of causes from Scripture to instruct those who cannot read so that they might understand the chief points of Christian doctrine. And you'll see in the slide above this chart that he has. It's quite spectacular. I read through some of modern theologians who have been written standard works on this subject, such as John Piper, Lorraine Boettner, and some other less-known theologians. Now, some of you hearing the mention of John Calvin may have heard of him as the originator of the dreadful doctrine of predestination. Now, he did call it dreadful. But in his time, dreadful meant profound and deeply mysterious. And he is correct. It is mysterious. But in fact, Calvin said if one thinks he can enter the mind of God to understand election and predestination, he will find himself in a never-ending labyrinth from which he will never escape. He even said if Scripture didn't teach predestination he would have never devoted any time to it. But nevertheless, Scripture teaches predestination so it is profitable for us to learn about it. And if pastors are called to declare the whole counsel of God, then us pastors must teach it to our people. And because God wants us to, wants us to teach it, then it must be useful in building up the body of Christ. still, Some may think the doctrine of predestination is an article of the faith that shouldn't be talked about. But the Apostle Paul's approach to the topic puts those assumptions to bed. How is that? Well, if you're still in Ephesians 1, verses 3-9, through if you know that section, Paul speaks of predestination in a celebratory expression of praise. In a celebratory expression of praise. He writes in verse 3 that our Creator, Father in Heaven, is blessed... For such a spiritual blessing. Paul blesses God because God has blessed believers, predestined them for sonship, and has made known to them the mystery of his will. Now, Pastor Steve did an incredible job of preaching through Romans, especially Romans 9. So if you haven't listened to that series, I encourage you to do so. Now, all I'm doing this morning is offering various nuances of the doctrine and addressing certain objections and questions that maybe Stephen not get to, but what you will see between us both. Is consistency in the Word of God. Consistency in the Word of God. So, my purpose this morning is to work through some key passages in Ephesians and expanding out to other parts of the Bible, showing its consistency with the rest of Scripture, and then to work through the implications of these passages. As I think you will see, the issue at hand is not about what the text says, rather, it is what the text implies about God. And us creatures. Ultimately, my hope is for all of us to embrace with the humblest of faith Paul's conclusion in Romans nine twenty. He says, this, "But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what is molded? Say to its molder, 'Why have you made me like this?'" So let's get into the context of Ephesians. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is a letter of great importance for the Christian faith. Its rich theology places emphasis on the role of Christ in our redemption. Specifically, Paul's focus is a believer's union with Christ in his death, resurrection, exaltation, and enthronement. It is in Christ that a believer receives all the spiritual blessings from God, and ultimately God's plan in Christ is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Now these three passages we'll look at this morning are part of one long sentence, verses 3 to 14 is actually one long sentence. Paul aims to show God's rich blessings on the faithful saints in Christ Jesus at Ephesus, which apply to all the saints in Christ. He arranges this section verses 3 to 14 with four uses of the phrase in him, in him, emphasizing that God's blessings have been given to the saints in Christ. Let's look at these together. Verse 4, in him, God the Father chose us before the foundation of the world. Verse 7, in him we have received redemption. Verse 11, in him we have received an inheritance. Verse 13, in him we were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And verse 14, all to the praise of his glory. So looking at our three passages, what do these texts say? What is Paul telling us? Verse 4, God the Father has blessed us in Christ. He chose us in Christ before, indicating when, before the foundation of the world. And his purpose in choosing us is to make us holy and blameless in love before him. Verse 5, the Father predestines us, the ones he chose, before the foundation of the world, the church, to be adopted as sons and daughters through Christ, indicating that Christ is the means or instrument through which the chosen are elected and adopted. And the Father has done this because it was according to his good pleasure to do so. In verse 6, the reason why he did this, to the praise of his glorious grace, having lavished it on the elect in the beloved one, Christ Jesus. Now let's look at verse 4. Paul says, For he chose us in him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in love before him. God's choosing is exactly that. He chose us. Who are the us? The saints in Ephesus and all Jew and Gentile Christians, also referred to as the elect from the Greek word eklektos, which means chosen one of God. When did he choose? Before the foundation of the world. What does that mean? It means he laid the foundation of the world before that time, before he created the cosmos, before the creation of all things, he chose us. Why did he choose us? He chose us to be holy and blameless in love before him. I might sound very elementary in the way I'm explaining it, but I'm saying it this way because I want you to see that is what the text says. I'm saying it this way because many say that what the text says, the way I'm reading it, isn't really what the text says. But what am I doing? I'm reading the text. I'm reading the text. I'm not trying to make it say something else or do any sort of interpretive gymnastics to show God chose a people from before the foundation of the world for himself. We simply read the text. But let's look wider throughout Scripture to see if there is support for this simple reading of the text. 2 Thessalonians 2.13-14 is basically a restatement from Paul on Ephesians 1.4. He writes, God chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Now, taking these three verses together, Ephesians 1, 2 Thessalonians passages, we see... God the Father chose us from the beginning in Christ, through in Christ for salvation, through sanctification by the Spirit. And the Apostle Peter expresses similar notions when he writes in First Peter one, one through two to those chosen, he says, To those chosen, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. So looking at these passages, we conclude that God's choosing was from before the foundation of the world, from the beginning, according to God's foreknowledge. And we were called to be holy and blameless for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and by being set apart by the Spirit for obedience and for sprinkling with Jesus Christ's blood. So in these few passages I've covered so far, Did I really offer an interpretation? No, I I read the passages from Ephesians and from other parts of the Bible, letting the texts speak for themselves. So now what is the interpretation of these passages? Here it is. In Christ, God has chosen for himself a people to be holy, who are to receive from him an inheritance, a kingdom. Is that really much of an interpretation? I'm reading the passages and i'm putting it together that's what the text says verse 5 and back in ephesians he says he predestined us to be adopted as sons through Christ Jesus for himself according to the good pleasure of his will in verse 5 god's purpose in the predestination of the elect those chosen for salvation in christ was so that they would be a heritage of god and would also receive an inheritance in Christ as sons and daughters. What does predestined mean? It means that God has predetermined or decided beforehand, before the foundation of the world, as the text says, to adopt a people, as the text says, us as sons through Christ Jesus. And we observed in 1.4, he chose us to be holy and blameless. Thus he predestined us to be conformed to the image of his Son, Who is holy and blameless? Church, predestination indicates purpose. It indicates purpose. We see this in Romans 8, 29 through 30, many of our favorite passages. To that end of predestination, those predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son, to be holy and blameless, God called them, justified them, and glorified them. So, what is this calling? Now, the word is primarily understood as an authoritative summons by God. We see this calling not only as an action on God's part, but it is descriptive of those whom God has chosen. It is also referenced to us as a group. In Jude 1, he says, the called. The called as a group, the called. In 1 Peter, we saw the chosen. The chosen. Now, as to the act of God calling, we can look to Romans 9, 11 through 12, and I have these verses on the screen above. In these passages, Paul points us to Genesis 25-23, which is also up there as well, where he tells Rebekah that she will have two sons, Jacob and Esau, and that the older will serve the younger. Now, while we do not see the why expressly stated in Genesis 25, Paul, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, tells us that God told Rebekah this before the twins were born and before they had done anything good or bad so that so that God's purpose according to election might stand. Why did God need to tell Rebecca this? Because God wanted her to know that when the younger son Jacob, through works of deception, takes his brother's birthright and inheritance, she will know this happened not from works, but from him who calls. That is not the ordinary way of the birthright. It goes against everything in the culture of how the birthright was given. So God wants her to know that he has his birthright because of him who calls. Notice Paul doesn't say, not of works, but of him who believes. Paul takes the glory from man and gives it to God. It was God's intervention in the lives of Jacob and Esau, as we see in that little phrase, so that, from 9-11, so that. That to carry out his intention of the older serving the younger. It was done through God's call. And why is this, as many people object to Paul? And he answers in Romans 9, 23 to 24. And what if he, God, what if he did this to make known the riches of his glory on objects of mercy that he prepared beforehand for glory on us, the ones he also called not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. <clears throat> now, while critics of predestination will say that the passage from Genesis 25-23 was speaking of predestination of nations, nations, not individuals, <clears throat> it seems that Paul's intention within Romans 9-1-23 is to demonstrate it, predestination, is to demonstrate it as the ongoing principle of God's unconditional election beyond the privileges of physical Israel, but rather to the Jew and Gentile to receive eternal spiritual blessings according to God's unmerited favor. God's calling is a work he does to fulfill his purposes according to the pleasure of his will. And as we read in Ephesians 1-11, through 11, One of our favorite passages, right? He works out everything in agreement with the purpose of his will. Now, as to predestination, let's think about this. If it were according to works, according to what we do, then God would not be working all things according to his will, but according to the will of another. As we produce our works, so he would adapt his election, adapt his predestination... This God to be led by another's will and not by God's own will. Paul says in Romans 1.1 1, 1 that he was called as an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. And for Paul's calling and all those God has called and will call, 2 Thessalonians 1-11 through 11 says God makes them worthy of his calling by his power. They are not worthy to be called. We are not worthy to be called. He makes them worthy by his power. The called, as we read in Jude 1, are those loved by God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. These are the sons and daughters who have been born of God. The Apostle John writes in John 1:12 to 13 that those who received Christ, God gave them the right to be children of God, the birthright, the right to be children of God. They didn't earn it or deserve it. He gave them that right of sonship. And this right to be children of God John continues, was not from natural descent, nothing by the order of people, nor by the will of the flesh, our choice, our willing, our working hard, or of our will, but of who? But of God. But of God. To be a child of God isn't based on the sinner who responds. Rather, it is based on him who calls. Verse 6. Paul concludes all of this to the praise of the glorious grace that he lavished on us in the Beloved One. In verse 6, we see God's purpose in predestining a people for himself, thus his end goal. His end goal was to the praise of his glorious grace, or you could say to the praise of the glory of his grace. The focus in this passage then is that those whom he predestined for adoption their being chosen, their being set apart to be holy as sons, results in their praise of how glorious His grace is. It results in our praise of how glorious God's grace is. How so? What do we see already? It is in Him, in Him, and we see that the surrounding passages that we have redemption, forgiveness, wisdom, and understanding, an inheritance, and hope. And because we are sons and daughters, his lavishing grace upon us is the promised Holy Spirit, which he gives to us and seals us as what? As the down payment of our inheritance. He secures our inheritance by himself, not by us. We don't let anything down. We have nothing to offer. He does to us the down payment of our inheritance until the redemption of the possession to the praise of his glory. All this, Scripture says, is according to his eternal purpose accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord. So I hope the interpretation, the explanation, the reading of these passages is quite clear. I didn't give you text after text after text to demonstrate the sovereignty of God over everything, notably in the predestination of sinners for salvation. If I did, we'd be here all day. Some months back when I restarted my Bible in a Year program, I decided I would catalog every passage in the Bible I came across showing God's determination as the decisive factor in the event of ac- or action taking place. But it was too much to keep up with. I had to stop. There should be a slide up there. Is it up there? Yeah. I got to Judges 12. And I counted 729 passages. 729 passages. It is everywhere. You cannot escape it, though many try to. Many try to. As mentioned earlier, I don't think the controversial aspect is so much with the reading and the interpretation of the text. Rather, it is the implication of what it tells us about God and about man. Why is that? It attacks man, it attacks us at the center of who we think we are. Who does man think he is? He thinks he's an autonomous being fully in control of his destiny. Nevertheless, the questions that the doctrine of predestination generate are real and pressing questions. Many have actually walked away from the faith because they cannot wrap their minds around the implications of this doctrine. But here's the kicker. No one can. No mere creature can wrap his mind around the wisdom of the Creator. And we were not made to. As Steve always says, we've got three-pound three brains. But God, through the prophet Isaiah, says, I declare the end from the beginning and from long ago, what is not yet done, saying, my plan will take place and I will do all my will. So again, back to my goal this morning. My goal is to situate us as creatures before a creator whose judgments are unsearchable and his ways untraceable. And as Paul extols in Romans eleven thirty three, of praise. Creatures were made to revel in the unsurpassable wisdom and glory of our creator. Job 12 and 13 says, Wisdom and strength belong to God. Counsel and understanding are his. Questioning God's ways is not our place. Again, back to Isaiah. Who has directed the spirit of the Lord? Who gave him counsel? Who did he consult? Who gave him understanding and taught him the paths of justice? Who taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Who did that? Nobody. So the first question I want to answer this morning really sets the foundation for how we should approach the rest of these key questions. So the first question, since scripture teaches us that God chooses creatures for his purposes, what does that tell us about God? First response, God has a will and purpose in how and why he has made creatures. God has a personal interest in his choice, and it is neither a random nor an impulsive whim, nor is it because he is indebted in some way to any creature. It means God is in control of our destinies. It means God's choosing of us to be holy and blameless means we will be so. God will fulfill his purposes because he is the sovereign creator and Lord of his creation. Church, this is the glorious God of the Bible. We were made to declare his praises to others. Now, some may hear this and shrink back, not wanting to declare these truths about God. Why not? Why should we even praise him if these things aren't true? God's ways are not our ways. Thank God they're not. The world is full of sinners trying to live according to their ways. And where has that gotten us? Since God is good in all that he does, then why would we clam up at the idea, rather the truth, that he's in control of our destinies? and not ourselves, who have three-pound brains. Now, originally I came up with about ten questions for consideration, but I don't have the time to go through them all, so I dwindled, dwindled, uh, dwindled it down to five. I think these are probably the most pressing on people's minds. Now, what I offer is something new. There have been many men before me, much wiser, more gifted than me, throughout the church history, that have thought through these issues and have provided good responses to these questions. <clears throat> But I think many haven't been exposed, <coughs> excuse me, to the wisdom that has come before us. Or which I see more often, many just haven't liked the answers. See, man is driven to achieve intellectual satisfaction, which began in the garden when Eve listened to the serpent. What was the result of that? We all know, that's why we're here. And on this matter, man has never Nor will he ever achieve that satisfaction because this mystery of God takes him to where the sidewalk ends. A large chasm he can only traverse if he leans on God's understanding, not on his own. As mentioned, many will walk away from the faith or distort the teachings of the Bible because they cannot believe that God has his own purposes in which man isn't the center. So our first pressing question, how is it fair that he chooses some and not others? As Christians, we are commanded to abstain from partiality, favoritism, or to be a respecter of persons. Scripture says that God isn't partial to anyone, for they are all works of his hands. But when it comes to election and predestination, many see an injustice on God's part. Why does he choose some and not others? Now, the problem with that question is that we are inclined to make decisions based on how another makes us feel. We are moved and influenced by others and within our own hearts to make decisions pertaining to others. With God, creaturely action does not move him to choose anyone. Rather, his good pleasure is found as the ground... Is the ground for his decision to elect some and reject others. God's pleasure isn't tainted like human pleasure. Rather, it flows from the pure goodness, righteous, and holy will of God. Because our pleasure is grounded in what? Our selfish motives. We would pick those closest to us right away. Why is that? Because of how they make you feel. Scripture says in 1 Samuel 16, 7, Man doesn't see it as the Lord sees. Man sees what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. Now, it's not that God can't, sorry, it's not that God can see one's heart as good and we cannot, though we, we can't. Rather, we only look on the outside in our judgments, unable to see that every heart is wicked as God sees. So if we choose, our choosing would be in arrogance. Whereas God's choosing is a work of pure mercy. And choosing the unworthy, God's only concern is his pure goodness. He doesn't consider whether one is better than the other. It is right for God to choose those he wills, for his will is the supreme rule of all equity and righteousness. In Romans 9 18, Paul says, <coughs> Excuse me, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Let me ask you this question, church, looking at that passage. If one needs mercy, what does that imply about that person's moral condition? And if God is to harden someone, what does that imply about that person's moral condition? Both are depraved and ungodly. If we are all unworthy, but how is God unjust or unfair, In choosing one over the other. Do you see the problem with this question? We would be unjust and unfair if election and predestination were our doing. And that is why Scripture says eternal salvation is not of works, but of Him who calls. We would choose based on one's works. But what does Scripture say in Romans 3 10 through 12? No one is righteous, no one seeks after God, no one does good. All throughout the Bible we see God acts for the sake of his name, the sake of his glory, his namesake, his righteousness. I could give you 30 plus passages spread throughout the Bible that show us that. But the essence of God's glory, his, his righteous name, and what it means to be God is found in Exodus 33, 18 through 19, which we receive, I'm sorry, which we which we see revealed further in Romans 9, 15 to 16. I have both passages on my screen. In Exodus 33, 18 and 19, Moses asks God to let him see his glory. God responds, saying, I will cause all my goodness to pass in front of you, and I will proclaim the name, the Lord, before you. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. The divine words that he says I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion or a manifestation of God's glory, a passing by of his goodness and proclamation of his name, the Lord. So what does that mean? Let's look at Romans 9:15-16. What objection, if you're familiar with this book, what objection is Paul addressing here? The same one I am. How is God's selection just? How is it fair? And what Old Testament passage does Paul refer to? Exodus 33:19 to answer. This question, why is he referring to this passage? And Paul's use of Exodus passage. Paul is saying, if God doesn't act according to the glory of his name, God's righteousness would be called into question. Why? Because the essential feature of God's glorious character is his freedom to do what? To bestow mercy on whomever he wills apart from any constraints originating outside of his will. Something other than the good will of God would determine or influence God's will and election, thus making his decision unrighteous. He listened to somebody else. He responded to somebody else. He was partial. To bestow grace and mercy on whomever he wills is to act in full allegiance to the glory of his name, as he showed Moses. I will have mercy on whom I have mercy. So what's Paul's purpose here in 9.15? He's declaring his character. It's a character issue that people struggle with. He's declaring his character, namely his sovereign freedom and displaying mercy. It is what God does to be who God is. Thank you. Man's willing... And running do not determine the bestowal of God's mercy. On the contrary, God's mercy determines man's willing and working, as Paul writes in Philippians 2.3. For it is God, it is God who is working in you, both to will and work according to whose good purpose? His good purpose. So are you concerned that God is unjust? Will anyone in here dare to subject God to his or her supervision? If we for a moment question God's decisions and decrees, then we reveal the root of our fault, arrogance. There is no will higher than the will of God. There is nothing greater than the will of God. If you think differently than what God has determined to come to pass, according to his infinite and glorious wisdom, you deceive yourself. Because what you are thinking could never actually be, because it is God's will that is done, not ours. I want that to really sink in. I so wanted to explain this, but I didn't have words for it. His will is his will. What happens, happens because of his will. Every decision, choice, event is his will. And his will is the greatest, is it not? So if things carry out according to his will, then what carries out is good because it's according to his will. And this is where Romans 9.20 must be our humble confession. Who am I, O man, to talk back to God? So why does God elect some and not others? Paul gives us the fullest answer in all of Scripture. Again, back in Romans 9, 22 to 23 Because God desires to display his wrath and power on objects of wrath prepared for destruction, and he desires to display the riches of his glory on objects of mercy prepared beforehand for glory. The ultimate aim of God is to do what? To show mercy. But to do so, he must place it against a backdrop of wrath. And God's act of predestination is the means he uses to achieve that purpose. Now, within this question, I think it is proper to address the misconception that many have of election and predestination, whereby they say that God elects individuals who he foresees will be faithful. As God somehow has looked down the quarter of time and he elects those that he sees are acting in faith. Now, I hope our examination of Ephesians 1 4 cleared up that misconception. As stated, God chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world, before doing anything good or bad, as the brothers brothers did. But hypothetically speaking, to entertain this misconception, I want to get into it, we need to ask ourselves, if that were the case, if that's the thesis, what would God actually see if he elects individuals based on what he foresees? Now again, within this manner of election, this assumes that we are left to our own natures as God looks down the quarter of time. What would He see? I already mentioned Romans 3:10 through 12, which says, "No one seeks after God, no one does good." Again, I ask, what would God see? Well, as Calvin says, God would see utter rottenness and loathing. According to Romans 8-7, Paul says every single power of our nature is at enmity with God. And again, Ephesians 1-4, God chose us to make us holy, not because he saw us as holy. So another question that arises from the understanding that God is sovereign over his entire creation is how... Am I accountable for my decisions if God has determined my actions? See, the thought is, if God has determined all things, then humans don't have free will. Scripture doesn't attempt to inform us how God's providence reconciles with man's free will, but there are only two options. Either God providentially guides his creation according to his purposes, which includes human choices, <clears throat> or the reality is merely the working of blind, physical fate. Either God is sovereign or he's not. Right? Either she's pregnant or she's not. There's no in-between. Now, some have tried to. Some have tried to orchestrate a third option, but they end up inconsistent in their interpretation of Scripture skipping over many, many passages. Again, they have to skip over the 729 passages I already told you about in the first six books of the Bible. To skip over all those passages to create an interpretation that's completely removed from the theme of Scripture. In doing so, many end up denying the clear, central teachings of the Bible, moving off into heresy land. And others will move away from the text, finding emotional solace in philosophical arguments, but we want Scripture to determine where we go. As the term of free will, it is found nowhere in the Bible. However, it is highly debated and has been controversial throughout all of Christianity. Many have offered these complex philosophical arguments, but I will spare you of the dizziness. But with that said, our view of human free will must be guided, shaped, and established in the biblical text. But it is important that we define our terms before getting into it. <clears throat> Excuse me. So the word determined, or sometimes we will say foreordains or decreed. More, more theologically speaking, it's called theological determinism. What does it mean? What does it mean to say that God determines all that comes to pass? Now I first will state what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that God is the acting agent, personally carrying out every event or action that comes to pass. Now, God is the primary cause of all events that occur in the world, but he isn't the one performing the actions within the creatures. His decree does not produce the event, but only renders its occurrence certain. So if you hold a pen in the air and you drop it, then you drop it. Not God. And it was decreed by God that you would drop the pen. And therefore, because it happened, it was ordained to happen, because the same decree, which determines the certainty of you dropping that pen, at the same time determines your freedom to do so. So what we see in God's determination of all things is logically compatible with human free choices. So when we sin, when we sin, we are the one sinning. But our decision to sin, as well as dropping of the pen, is according to the will of God. Now what do we mean by the will of God? God's will doesn't always imply God's moral approval of a decision, action or event. But nothing happens apart from God's will. Otherwise there would be something that he wasn't aware of occurring in his universe. <clears throat> so if you sin, it only happened because God determined it would. But now we're back to that question. How am I accountable for my sins? Now when hearing this, many tend to go the route of fatalism, which says all of our choices have been determined and we cannot do otherwise. <clears throat> but that is not what it's meant when we say God determines our actions. Rather, it is more proper to say, if God foreknew you would sin, then you do not refrain from sinning. Fatalism would say you cannot refrain from sinning. So what is the difference? According to determinism, you sin because you wanted to sin. According to fatalism, you sin because you had to sin. Do you see the difference? It has to do with one's will making one's desires culpable in the decision to sin. See, fatalism removes the culpability of our sinfulness. So God is the primary cause behind, in, and through every action or event that occurs, as Acts 17.28 says. It says, For in him we live and move and have our being. So in him we live, in him we move, and in him we exist. And God is the primary cause upholding and sustaining all things by his powerful word, God's sustaining, providing, and guiding power establishes the freedom we have to make decisions. So as it pertains to evil choices that humans make, God only upholds the creature to do evil, not the evil itself. Evil lies in the heart of man, not God. And so when man carries out evil... And nothing cannot occur, and nothing can occur unless it is according to the will of God. Since God is good, righteous, and holy, we affirm that God wills righteously those things which men do wickedly. If God didn't want the sinful event to come about, then it wouldn't. Now, I don't like to use the the word. I mean, we use it quite a bit. I think we do it to kind of maybe take the the hard edge off the claim, but I don't want to say that God permitted or allowed something. You see, if God permits something or allows something, that means the action or event wasn't part of his foreknowledge of all things, and then he had to learn something new and then make room for that. It shows something or someone that isn't God can thwart or change what he has decreed, and then God must respond and rearrange his plans. But we don't see that in Scripture. Now, one of the most helpful examples in Scripture to support what I'm saying is that in the event of the sinless Son of God being offered up for crucifixion. As it pertains to God's will, it is sin for someone to murder another person, especially one without sin. But Acts 2.23 in four twenty seven through 28, says, the evil men that assembled to arrest and execute Jesus were doing, quote, whatever God's hand and God's will had predestined to take place, end quote. Does God approve of murder? No, he does not. But he predestined the murder of the Son of God Because according to his eternal wisdom, it was necessary for the murder of his son to happen. Why is that? So he could raise him up in glory, and as Ephesians 2.7 says, display the immeasurable riches of his grace through his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. That is the end for which we have been predestined. Next question. Do we have... That question is still looming over us. Do we have free will? What do we mean when using the word free will? For most, free will means a person making a decision must be able to choose differently in that moment. They could have chosen this one or this one. For example, when you get ready for work, you have a blue shirt and a red shirt before you. (laughs) Using your free will, you choose the red shirt, but you could have also chosen the blue shirt. It was your choice. There is nothing forcing you or constraining you to choose the red shirt. That is what most people understand free will to mean. However, the question of why did you choose the red over the blue is where this discussion gets a little tricky. And we start to see free will isn't as free as many think. Something that makes all of us different from each other is we have different preferences for things. You see, I hate mushrooms. If you put mushrooms and broccoli in front of me, I will always choose the broccoli. Why is that? I don't like mushrooms. Why? I just don't. I cannot tell you why. I have no desire to touch, smell, or taste a mushroom. I wasn't tortured by mushrooms when I was a kid or did some bullies stuff some mushrooms in my mouth. I just don't like them. But, but, if you put Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream in front of me, I will be overwhelmed with desire to eat it. I will stare intently on it, wanting nothing else. I have to confess, Church, I eat ice cream every day. Don't judge me. Why is that? I don't know. I have a strong inclination toward it that I cannot undo. For me to no longer like it would require someone removing my taste receptors for Reese's peanut butter cup ice cream or replacing them with different receptors that preferred maybe mushrooms. But what I want you to understand from this is that we don't choose things equally. We choose things based on what we like or prefer. That's how humans choose things. And that's what we always do. Now, someone might object saying if I was held at gunpoint by someone telling me to give up my life or my wallet, and I chose to give up my wallet, that decision wasn't a free decision. Someone said, I had no other option. I had to give up my wallet. Well, let's think about that. What is the common view of free will that we've just talked about? In any situation, the person making the decision must be able to choose differently. Let's go back to the hold-up scenario. Was I able to choose differently? Was I able to say... No, I'm keeping my wallet. You can take my life. I could have. I could have done that. But because I had a greater preference for my life than my wallet, I handed over my wallet. I was motivated by my desire to live rather than die. I freely chose that route. I would have never chosen to keep my wallet. So notice the words motivated and preference. And keep those in your pocket. We will pull them out a little later. Now, in that situation, my free will would have been violated if I desired and decided to hand over my wallet, but some force was holding my arm back from handing it over no matter how hard I tried. And then someone forced my mouth and my vocal cords to utter the words, you are not getting my wallet, you can take my life instead. Do you see the difference? I was constrained. I was, I was an outside force, forced me to act contrary to how I wanted to act. So let's talk about sin. Why do we sin? The standard biblical teaching reveals that we have a sin nature stemming from Adam's fall in the garden, putting all of creation under a curse by which we all by nature are children of wrath, as Ephesians 2.3 says. Now, we all understand that. But I want to go a little deeper and how it relates to why and how we make choices. Let's hear from Jesus. In John 3.19, he says, This is the judgment. The light has come into the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Guess what the Greek word translated as love is? It's probably the one Greek word everybody knows. It's agape, right? Agape love. What does that word mean? In this context, it means to take pleasure in or have great satisfaction in something. So what do these people prefer? Darkness. Because they loved it. They love darkness. Now, if you think you're excluded from these people, let's look elsewhere in the Bible. Genesis 8.21. Following the great flood that God brought to wipe out humanity because of their wickedness, he says... I will never again curse the ground because of human beings. Human beings, a class, all human beings. Even though, even though the inclination of the human heart is evil from youth onward. We are all in that group of human beings. Jeremiah 17, 9 says, The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand? And then again, back to Jesus in Matthew 15, 19. He says, For from the heart, right? The God-shaped whole hearts that people say that we have. From the heart comes what? Evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, sexual immoralities, thefts, false testimonies, and slander. Now let's pull those words I asked you to keep in your pockets. Let's pull them out. The word motivated and preference. And with the scriptures we just covered in mind, why do you think we choose what we do? More importantly, why do we sin? You see, man cannot prefer against his preferences, nor choose against his choices. Our evil hearts are motivated by our desires to sin. Our hearts have a preference to sin. And because we prefer to sin, then we sin freely. God is a free agent, is he not? Yet what is certain in his choices, he will always do right. Satan and his demons, are they not free agents? But they will always do what? Choose evil. And we are, when we are glorified with Christ in eternal bliss, we will no longer be able to sin. So does that mean we lose our freedom to choose? No. <clears throat> it all comes down to the desires and motivations of our hearts. We will always do what we most want to do. And so, having evil hearts, do we naturally desire righteousness and holiness? 1 Corinthians 2.14, Paul says, But the person without the Spirit does not receive what comes from God's Spirit because it is foolishness to him. It is foolishness to him. He is not able to understand it since it is evaluated spiritually. Again, what comes from the Spirit to natural man, he sees as foolishness. We do not prefer or desire the things of God because we live according to the flesh. To live according to the Spirit, we must be born of the Spirit. Man, in his fallen depraved nature, does not have the moral inclination to walk by the Spirit. Scripture says, actually out of the mouth of Jesus, Scripture says everyone who commits sin is what? A slave to sin. He is a slave to corruption, we see in Second Peter. And this is why man needs to be made free from his sin, so that he can choose righteousness. But it cannot come from man because he's what? Dead in sin and trespasses. He lives according to the ways of the world, unable to see the truth. And he can't see it because he doesn't desire it. Thus, which is why he's accountable? He is made in the image of God, and he should what? He should desire it. And that is what we read in Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 21, where Paul writes, What can be known about God is evident among them, because God has shown it to them. For though they knew God, they did not glorify him as God or show gratitude. Our first parents, Adam and Eve, their fall into sin was necessary. Why is that? If we look back to Ephesians one four again, what does it say? But if God, because if, if God chose us in Christ, <coughs> excuse me, from before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless, not because we we're holy and blameless, but He chose us to be holy and blameless. Apart from those who were not chosen to be holy and blameless, then there had to be an event that caused man to be unholy and guilty. So Adam and Eve's fall was necessary, but God is not at fault because his decree, his determination, sorry, his decree didn't determine in the will of Adam and Eve to sin. They must fall and put themselves into sin and corruption. Now, while it was according to the will of God that they fall, thus it was necessary that they fall, they were not compelled to fall. No external source forced them to sin, but they fell freely by their own choosing. See, God does not cause, nor can he cause, anyone to sin. So rather, he doesn't hinder one from sinning by their own desires. The original righteousness that Adam and Eve had was then lost. So the rest of humanity, all of us, likewise, lost the desire to choose righteously. Under the curse of sin, human nature is inclined and bent towards sin and evil. However, humanity still possesses what we call the natural powers of men in order to perform the good duties of men, which is why man is accountable for his sin. But the spiritual power, the grace of God, is that transformation of the mind to righteous desires so that we can carry out the good works God has called us to do. In this manner, what does it say that grace is? God's free favor toward the unworthy to deliver us from the state in which we were fallen. And our last pressing question, does God's predestination of individuals to salvation imply predestination of individuals to damnation. This is probably the most vexing. But Scripture actually speaks little on on the subject. It focuses more on predestination, but I want to keep this short as well. And seeing that God elects and predestined sinners to salvation means that he rejected those whom he willed. It is an unpleasant doctrine to talk about, but again, Scripture does teach it, so we must. These are called the reprobate. Regarding the reprobate, Scripture says, Proverbs 16.4, The Lord has prepared everything for his purpose, even the wicked for the day of disaster. 1 Peter 2, eight: These, the reprobate, they stumble and disobey the word as they were destined to. And in Jude 4, they, the reprobate, were designated for this judgment long ago. Now, one of the misconceptions is that God ensures They sin, so they receive eternal judgment. The elect, he lifts up. The reprobate, he keeps down. That is not the case, as I hope you can see. The sons of perdition make themselves worthy of damnation because of their own sin and wickedness. And in God's decision to, to reject them, he leaves them justly in their fallen condition. Let each of us descend Into the recesses of our minds and if you seriously consider your moral condition, what will you find? Your just condemnation graven on your conscience. We should find that we are all guilty of death and that each of us looking closely at himself must condemn himself. The reprobate I can never say that word, the reprobate they do not see their guilt because they prefer the darkness that they do see, as we prefer the darkness that we do see. But in God's grace for the elect, we who likewise deserve to be cast into hell have been illuminated by the light of the gospel and should be constantly grasping for God's grace. It should cause us to realize That apart from predestination, no one would ever be saved. It should humble us, leaving us prostrate before the mercy of God, thankful beyond words, because we are so sinful and wicked and hopeless, yet God ordained us to salvation and sealed us with his spirit to secure us and to tame our obstinate ways to lead us to glory. Predestination should lead us to praise. That is where it led Paul. Why do you think that? What did he say about himself? He was the chief of sinners. The chief of sinners. He didn't blame God. He didn't say, Why is it like this? He knew he was the chief of sinners because he knows his own heart. He knows his own desires. He knows his own preferences. And it was for darkness, it was to kill Christians. The one who is forgiven of more loves more. The one who is forgiven of little loves little. Do we have more that we're forgiven of or little? Exponentially more. There is no way to count the amount of sins that we've sinned and committed against God every day. Now, if you think predestination is a dreadful doctrine, unfitting Of the love of God, then you fail to see how dreadful your sin is before a holy God in the immense depth of his love and mercy. Let us not grumble at our judge. What he has determined from eternity is hidden from us, we cannot conceive of it. Paul was brought closer than any human creature to behold these mysteries. And in looking over the great chasm of God's mystery, Paul didn't ask. Why is it like this? Rather, he was moved to praise of the Creator, as we see in Romans eleven thirty three 33-36. Oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and untraceable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has been his counselor? And who has ever given to God that he should be repaid? For from him and through him and to him Are all things to him be the glory forevermore? So, do you still find fault with God? Let us be humbled. Who are we to answer back to God? God is God, and we are not. Let us pray.